In this episode of Influencers, Silicon Valley pioneer and former Apple senior vice president of global marketing, Sachiv Chahil. It was long-haired, music-loving scientists who wanted to make the world a better place. The computer industry always treated women as an afterthought. The concept there was not about controlling the world, but about empowering people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Sachiv Chahil, who is a veteran marketing executive from Silicon Valley that undersells it dramatically, Sachiv. We'll talk all about those things and more. Anyway, it's great to see you. Great to see you too, Andy. So you've lived in Silicon Valley for quite some time. I want to talk about working at Apple, IBM, HP, and all that. But maybe we should start out big picture. What is it about Silicon Valley that makes it so special and so unique? What makes Silicon Valley special is not just the geography, but the mindset of Silicon Valley. And the mindset was so different than the rest of the business world. And every aspect of business was thought differently in that people were curious about what you were thinking. They wanted to help you. The work environment was different where people would take chances on you. Hierarchy was not important. And people convened according to the ideas they believed in and the passions they had. And it was welcoming to people from all over the world and all fields of interest. Now, how has it changed, Sachiv? Is it still the same? It, it, I was actually sharing my perspectives with a pal the other day in Europe. I said, when I went there, it was long-haired, music-loving scientists who wanted to make the world a better place. And I said, now it's ended up being quick, rich, or people wanting to get rich quickly and manipulate the world. So it's been very disheartening uh, for folks like myself who were driven by other motives. And, uh, and we hope somehow it gets back to what it was all about. I want to go through uh, some of the times at these companies that I mentioned. And you started off talking a little bit about IBM. So yes. tell us about when you came to IBM what you learned there, and what your assessment of the company today is. When I joined IBM, it was the most powerful company in the world. And it could stand up to governments. It was that powerful. And the US government itself was afraid of IBM and had antitrust actions against it. So getting a job at IBM for me was uh, was like, uh, came from heaven. You know, you couldn't imagine getting such a job. And I wrote to my grandma in India, your prayers have been answered. I work for the world's most powerful, greatest company, and they take care of you from, you know, for generations once you get in there. When I got into IBM, uh, it was a very disciplined, organization. I, I, uh, my earlier childhood was in a former British military boarding school, so it felt like being 
in a military boarding school again, extremely disciplined. The good aspects were that we were given uh, training on ethics. We were not allowed to even expense a drink on our expense account. We were told to answer our mail as it came. So a lot of good business discipline was learned at IBM and manners and behavior towards other people. The, uh, but the whole company uh, was driven by uh, what they were doing is management information, reporting, controls. So the, the business purpose was so different than where I landed up. So it was just all about business and productivity and control. Do you have any thoughts on IBM today? Yes, uh, actually one, at that time, one could never imagine that nobody know who IBM is. In, the, in those days, even in, the, it, they used to say IBM's not a company, it's an environment. So if you were in any aspect of the computer business, they said don't think of it as a competitor, think of it as the environment mm -hmm. and how you can work within that environment. And it was when I was there, I was fortunate to be in the data processing division. That was the, the biggest computers that controlled everything. The other two divisions were the mini computer division, uh, it was called the GSD, and then was the office products division that did the lower end products. So those are the guys who were assigned to do the PCs. And my first sort of uh, knowledge of a PC came, uh, be, seem odd, through the Playboy magazine, which talked about a guy called Steve Jobs making a personal computer. And at IBM, people thought, what a strange notion. And it just, it didn't, there was no comprehension about it. And it was from that division that they licensed MS-DOS, so Microsoft, got its break by being the software provider to the IBM PC. So when did you leave IBM and join Apple? I mean, and you're right, I mean, of course, IBM introduced its PC, yes. and then Apple did, and then, of course, in 1984, had that famous it's commercial, so and you're a marketing guy, so I want to know when you joined, and tell us about your work there. So from uh, after IBM, I went to Xerox. Mm -hmm. Xerox then was the new growth company, and they figured out how to put ink on paper. And they were literally printing money. And Xerox, so they needed to scale, so they were hiring from IBM. I tell people I'm not as unstable as I seem. It's the path of the industry that I went with. And so an ex-boss recruited me into Xerox, and Xerox those days was making so much money that you had to send a certain percentage on R&D. That's when they set up a lab in Silicon Valley that was known as Xerox Park, Palo Alto Research Center. So they collected the most brilliant scientists and asked them to think of a paperless future, which seemed such a far-fetched idea, but they'd keep them busy, and when Xerox faced competition, they 
wanted to know what's this money we are spending for and what should we do with it. So it was at that time that I was asked to come here to the West Coast and figure out what do we do with this technology these guys are creating. Around that time, Steve Jobs happened to visit Xerox Park, and he got it, what the Xerox Corporation could not get. And so he, his, the whole Macintosh and what Apple became originated at Xerox Park. He hired Larry Tesla, who, who was the creator of Cut and Paste. He became the chief technology officer of Apple. So I, while I was there studying what we could do, we landed on the same idea of desktop publishing and office publishing Xerox had the printers. I, uh, one of my office neighbors was, again, one of these long-haired genius scientists called Joe Becker. He figured out how to do foreign languages on computers. And he was the father of Unicode, which even allows us not just languages, but all these emojis to be on computers. So I, I suggested at the time, why don't we launch multilingual desktop computing and we can cut Apple off on the path. Right. Yeah. And, uh, but the, the management didn't understand what this was and they asked the, the, the wrong question, what are we doing with these weird languages? Mm. So the rest is history. One after the other, people left Xerox. The founders of Adobe, I was in the same office space as them. So all, all these people who were doing these scientific developments and wanted to change the world for the better. And, and the concept there was not about controlling the world, but about empowering people. Right. So, so that's, and that was Apple's raison d'etre, right. was to change the world, improve the way people work, learn, think, and play. So how did you end up at Apple, and what did you do there? Yeah, so when, so my, when, when it became clear that Xerox would not do anything with multi, uh, multilingual computing, and I was in charge of the group, I, uh, I told my team they're free to go. So Larry Tesla, Apple hired that team, and they launched WorldScript. And also at the same time, at that time then, the CEO was John Scully, and actually he doesn't get credit for this, but he was the first person in Silicon Valley or in American business to realize that if uh, those days Japan Inc. ruled the world, yeah. whichever industry they targeted, they took. And as they'd been done with industries, they took the Hollywood studios, they took the beautiful buildings in New York, and the golf courses. So Scully had the, the vision uh, that the future would be across the Pacific, and that we must succeed in Japan before they take the computer industry. So they'd already started buying semiconductor companies in Silicon Valley. So they created a new division called Apple Pacific, which then actually included Canada, Central South America, Australia, Japan, and Asia. And they were looking for a marketing leader for this. So one of my former team of Xerox suggested to Apple to hire me. 
And I was not interested in going to Apple because I thought they just knocked off all Xerox technology. But the, when the person invited me, he presented me a job spec is what was my proposal to Xerox mm. that we should do. And so I was, it became a cause and I ended up joining Apple Pacific and then leading its efforts in Japan. And then we ended up becoming the most uh, desired brand in Japan and the first success story of an American company. And you worked for Apple for, for quite some time, and I want to hear more about that. You never worked directly with Steve Jobs, but you no, knew I, him very well. Yes, and I crossed paths yeah. with him on various occasions. And uh, I learned a lot from him indirectly because I, I admired how he got things, how he marketed his, his quest for perfection. So I sought out, Steve Jobs never shared where his learnings came from. So I, I uh, sought out who he learned from. So Regis McKenna was the marketing guru who, uh, who actually is the founder of the Silicon Valley way of marketing through connections with influencers and ecosystems. I sought out Hartmut Esslinger, who taught Steve Jobs design. He designed the first, uh, the famous Apple Mac with the smile. Hartmut used to be design advisor to Akio Morita of Sony. So I learned through friendships with Hartmut, with Regis and others, the, the whole sense of design, sense of marketing, communications. And as I think it's well known that Steve had a great admiration for Sony. And all the Apple screens were Trinitron screens. Even the first Apple laptop was made by Sony. And being in Japan, I was liaison with Sony. So I got very close uh, interactions with Sony and learning from them in uh, creating the perfection of products. And also in Japan, uh, interestingly then, uh, Steve also, when he created Next, he targeted Japan. He wanted to stay there. So we were head-to-head -head competitors there. And in the end, we, we succeeded and Next withdrew. And the, the, uh, in Japan, actually what you see now uh, sort of Apple is the design standard, out-of-box experience standard in the world. We actually learned it in Japan. So I used to bring Japanese product to the boardroom at Apple and unbox. You know, the, anybody who's been to Japan, you buy even a, a small piece of cake, the way they package it is extraordinary. So we, we learned perfection doing business in Japan. And Apple still has that box, boxing aesthetic that comes all the way from there. That's fascinating. What, what do you think that Steve Jobs, why do you think his legacy still resonates so strongly, Sajeev? I think uh, he, one, he was the greatest communicator there was. He knew how to present ideas, product. He knew how to catch the imagination of people. So I always thought of him as the chief imagination officer. 
And when uh, I'm in no position to comment on many things about him, the Johnny Ive and Tim Cook and others, uh, the closest to him. But just then, as an outsider, when people would ask me, yeah, the, the, I'd say, if, if it weren't for Tim Cook, Steve couldn't have succeeded or Johnny Ive, because operationally, we were always a disaster. Products wouldn't show up, some wouldn't work, they'd land in the wrong country. Ever since he got Tim Cook, they're like a machine. The products always landed. In the end, in companies, the unsung heroes are the operation guys who make everything work. And so, but there's nothing brilliantly new that hit. And so as I was reflecting on all that, I say, you know, they're missing a chief imagination officer. They had a great designer, they had a great operations man, but the imagination officer. So when, when uh, Amazon launched Alexa, I said that should have been Apple. And there's so many other things in the nest, so many things that came out. But it's interesting, they're all ex-Apple people who've been introducing these new innovations through other companies. Yeah, it's interesting because people talk about those kinds of shortcomings with Apple, and yet still, it is the most valuable company on the planet. Yeah. And so still that, the power of Tim Cook's expertise, even lacking exactly. maybe the new product smash hit that everyone says they don't have, yes. is still incredibly powerful. Uh, amazing, and if you see, actually the valuation went up after Steve passed. Right. It was the execution that was so superb. The first iPhone wasn't that good as a product, but they got it out and they kept improving it. You may recall, I, I worked for the predecessor of the iPhone, I worked at Palm, and we had the Palm Pilot, which actually, I have a picture that time of, I took on the Palm Pilot of Norm Perlstein and Ann Moore, as they kept the photo on a handheld. And so the, but there again, we were not able to get the right product out right. at the right time. I want to ask you about HP. Um, you were there and executed the uh, Computer's Personal Again campaign. I want to ask about that. And also, uh, our mutual friend, Vivian Tam, yes. the designer, talk about working with her at HP, those two things. Uh, I, I'd, I'd love to. The, uh, so at the time, I had retired from Palm, and I'd retired like about three times more interested in social purpose ventures. And, uh, but the former, uh, former Apple teammate was CTO of uh, HP, and his name was Shane Robertson. And the, uh, at that time, Mark Hurd had been hired as the uh, CEO of HP, and IBM had sold its PC business to to Lenovo, to the Chinese. And so then the, the expert opinion from the McKinsey's and all the places was that no American company could survive this business and that perhaps Dell had a chance because of its direct business. And so the HP 
folks had the dilemma, should they drop the PC business, keep it? So then they determined it was important for their scale and for selling print that they must keep it and that they must somehow make it profit neutral, not lose money. So I it was asked if I would join the team and help revive and save this business. The, uh, when I studied it, et cetera, and then I didn't want to go back to a large corporation, so I, I was not that interested. Then there's a gentleman you may have met called Paul Sappho. He was in the Institute for the Future. I had lunch with him, and he said, Sajeev, HP is not a job, it's a cause. I said, why is it a cause for me? He says, because HP created Silicon Valley. The whole mindset of Silicon Valley was driven by Hewlett and Packard, the open door policy, the respect for environment, all the things. And, and so you can't let this company sink. So I said, oh my God, don't make it a cause. <laughs> you know? I can't turn it down. And so I joined the team and they, they were, uh, uh, those days, they used to tease uh, HP. They used to say if HP were marketing sushi, they'd called it a cold dead fish. <laughs> and, and so the, the challenge was how to take that mentality and bring some of the old Apple way of thinking and pizzazz and cachet. So, Fortunately, they gave me the latitude to make massive change, and we immediately used technology to assess marketing. Because in the past, you do research surveys that took years to feel, get back, and the world had changed. And there was a new product called a flip camera. You just flipped it, took a video, and put it in a USB. So I told the marketing team around the world, get flip cameras, ask people what they feel about Computers, nobody said it's a commodity. They all said, this is the most personal thing in my life. It's my music, it's my thoughts, it's my work. And then we shared that research with our ad agencies and came the idea of let's make the computer personal again. So then we launched this campaign and we also turned the celebrity marketing sideways because HP and other companies paid huge to celebrities for product announcements. So we decided that what we do is we'd celebrate people of achievement mm -hmm. from sports, music, film, and fashion and show their life and support their causes. Right. So the first one we did was with Jay-Z, you know, and we never showed their face, mm -hmm. we just showed who they were about, and then we would donate. So similarly, we did with Serena Williams, and we helped build schools in Africa. So that's how we connected with these people of extraordinary talent, and, and that campaign then put HP on the number one spot, just not from marketing, but from both uh, market share and profitability, and that's how I land with meeting Vivian Tam. And you made a computer that was had an outside yes. Vivian Tam design yes. shell. It was extraordinary because as we also 
started this new campaign, in all our communications, we discovered, you know, the computer industry always treated women as an afterthought. They didn't realize half of humanity are women, and they multitask, and they do more with technology than the average man does. So, so we already had initiatives, partnerships, as I expressed with Serena's and others, to, to inspire uh, and have more meaningful exchange. And the, uh, the old uh, sort of method of thinking is, you want to sell a product to a woman, paint it pink. So I remember reading a book said, don't think pink. So we decided to uh, seek out a designer. And then a designer who was global, whose designs were timeless, who had a real passion for materials and things. And that's how, through the fashion industry, we discovered Vivian. And it was very interesting when we first had a meeting with her, we had our designers, engineers, and we were wondering what product. And she said, it should be like a clutch. So all of us were thinking of the automobile <laughs> clutch. In, uh, immediately, at least I, I for sure didn't know what a clutch right. was. Right. And so, her size was not 11-inch screen, 13-inch screen, the size of a clutch. So then we have to think differently on what size screen to get. Then she said, I want the texture of this like a, a Chinese snuff box. Mm. So it, it, it was very challenging, and then she wanted a keyboard that had a tactile feel of a piano. So for us kind of guys, you know, and those, within my tomb, they said, Jeeves, mad, what the hell has he got us into? You know, and it was sort of uh, painful to adjust. But when, and then what she did was also extraordinary. She didn't conceive it in isolation, just doing a product for a tech. She did a whole fashion collection, first with the peony, then, then later with the butterflies. So her whole collection was integrated with this clutch that was a laptop. Yeah, it, it may not have been the most successful product, but it was groundbreaking. And I would tell you with the size anticipated yeah. The iPad right. and the and the mini iPad correct. that came later, but but, but I'd right. like to correct you on that. It and was successful. It was you know since men uh -huh. are forecasting, okay. they only forecast ten percent. The product sold out in three months. Okay, I stand corrected. It was fifty percent of the margin of that category. Mm. So the the product was priced. Right. Higher, right? The women happily paid for the higher price, 
and they all loved the product. I have handwritten notes and Vivienne's. We got it. We have to find things. them. They're, they're yes. hard to get. Yeah. Um, we're, we're running out of time here, Sajiv. I want to ask you, you were sort of down on Silicon Valley yes. at this point. Yes. I wonder uh, what your thoughts are on the future of Silicon Valley, if there is any hope at all. And what companies do you think, maybe in Silicon Valley and even beyond, are getting things right now? You know, that's, I've been thinking a lot about that. And I'm basically an optimist. So somewhere, I think the moral compass will come back into the heads of Silicon Valley. And I'm glad that people are putting pressure on Silicon Valley. And they are and now there have been management changes and companies like it happened at Uber and other places, et cetera, to, to get the, uh, the culture to get back and things, and the, uh, the companies, I, I, I've, being a long-time Apple guy, I still feel it is a higher integrity place than others. And, uh, and I'm just hoping in new, new uh, other companies uh, would emerge, and the big ones would also sort of correct their culture and their business practices. But, but it needs, you know, also, the, the, we began with IBM. The regulators were watching IBM like a hawk. It, uh, Facebook just took off buying Instagram, WhatsApp. So they got the world from all sides. And these, uh, so, so many of these acquisitions and things, even Amazon's and all, uh, sort of, they end up with monopolistic powers and behaviors. So these needs to be challenged, and also consumers need to push back and things and vote for the guys uh, who are doing better and are approaching business with better practices. So, so I'm hoping in a few years things start correcting and it gets back to the older, earlier values of Silicon Valley that kind of where it ended up. Some great perspective from someone who's seen many decades of change on Silicon Valley, Sajeev Chahal. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Andy. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time.